Hello and welcome. I'm Jur Zhong, the editorial assistant at Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at zocalopublicsquare.org and all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please like it, follow us, or subscribe. We're about to hear from Kartikeya Singh, a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He joins us today to discuss his article titled, Bureaucracies for the Better, where he details how government institutions could be redesigned to mitigate climate change. And I'm thrilled to introduce Lisa Margonelli, who will interview Kartikeya today. She is the Editor-in-Chief at Issues in Science and Technology, and also the author of Oil on the Brain, Petroleum's Long Strange Trip to Your Tank. Over to you, Lisa. I'm Lisa Marganelli, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Issues in Science and Technology. We're a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and by Arizona State University. And you can find us at issues.org. We are delighted to partner with Zocalo to present today's conversation, asking, can bureaucracy start a climate revolution? Joining me is Karthikai Singh. Karthikai is the Director of Programs at the SED Fund and was previously a Senior Fellow and Deputy Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he led the Engaging Indian States Initiative. Karthikai, thank you very much for speaking with me today. To start off, I'd like to ask you about this weird question that we're going to, to start on, is can bureaucracy start a climate revolution? I mean, we tend to think about climate revolutions coming through technology, entrepreneurs, um, money, uh, big policy changes, and you've come up with this answer of bureaucracy. Yes, and um, I mean, I think based on my experience and, and observation uh, and engagement uh, with bureaucracy um, in, in a couple of different countries, but one in particular uh, place that I was born, India, um, I would like to believe uh, seeing the arc of progress that has been made in terms of the revolution and the power sector in particular, that uh, the bureaucracy can uh, really be behind a climate revolution. So let me just let me dive a little bit into that because I want we're we're really we're talking about India, which is a huge country, um, and we're also sort of talking about how uh, climate policy is not one size fits all. It is there are certain opportunities and certain possibilities in different places. And what you've seen, <clears throat> what you suggest, is that there is a sort of particular way of approaching the issues in India. Um, and that grows out of your experience because you've been going there as, as, a, as an academic and as a, as a policy person and as a thinker for at least 15 years as an adult. Um, and tell me what you've seen. Tell me about this revolution that you've already seen in India. Yeah, um, and it, it has. I think in the last 15 years, um, the country you know, from a, from a climate and energy standpoint has been transformed. Um, so when I first sort of went uh, as part of a fellowship uh, to Delhi to, to very naively think I was going to solve India's climate and energy problems and, and write the policies, um, I was very quickly told... 2006? 2006. Um, I, um, I was very quickly you know, told that in, in India I needed to sort of focus on um, the question of energy poverty um, and the fact that how could a country like India 
um, you know, address climate change when 500 million people at that time didn't have access to electricity. Um, and rightly so, India, in the international climate negotiations that we hear about, um, you know, on an annual basis uh, that have been going on for decades, India was advocating for the right to emit more carbon to provide more cheap electricity powered by firing coal uh, to this unelectrified population. And um, I think at that time when I went uh, and, and did surveys in villages um, and started to really ask about, okay, what are the alternatives uh, to providing access to electricity, if not through a grid, which was much smaller then in, uh, at that time in its reach, um, what could be some of the solutions? Uh, and so I really started to focus on kind of the decentralized renewable energy solutions that had been um, being tested out for, for many years prior, I would say probably about you know, 10 years prior, there had been many experiments and, and deployment efforts. Uh, and by these kinds of technologies, I mean solar home lighting systems, you know, a panel, uh, a couple light bulbs uh, in a house to provide basic lighting, uh, other solutions like a small, taking a small stream and, and uh, attaching sort of a, a generating unit to it and, you know, generating electricity from a small hydro unit or taking um, biogas that people could generate at their house if they had cows, uh, you know, allow the cow manure to ferment and feed it water and stuff. So figuring out how people were interacting with this. And so if I time, can summarize that, what you're, you're talking right now about the before times, you're talking about like 2006, the thinking then was like solar lanterns moving from kerosene lanterns to solar lanterns. It was um, moving from, um, maybe animal powered um, processes to something that had a small hydropower process, something like that, a little uh, local biogas. Where are we now? I wanna give people the sense of this, like this revolution that happened. So where are we now? What happened to the 500 million people with no grid? Yeah, so uh, a lot happened to the 500 million people with no grid. Um, so in that backdrop of trying to deploy smaller systems, the government kind of amped up its efforts and its grants and programs to extend the grid aggressively out to literally every home. Um, so around 2016, I would say, um, or 2018 is when um, the government managed to get wires and poles out to every home um, to basically electrify every single household. And what I was trying to say before is that even the small home lighting systems that uh, had barely thought about integrating LED bulbs, so India was not really uh, a place where LED bulbs existed, has today um, brought LED, the cost of LED bulbs by over 80% have decreased in a country like India and hundreds of millions of these bulbs are everywhere because of new institutions uh, designed by the government to get this um, energy efficient lighting solution out everywhere. So that was, you know, on the power sector side, um, the conversation changed dramatically. Uh, and then people wondered, do we even need these small solutions anymore? Um, I think of course we can get to it, but the, the conversation's coming back full circle to the value of decentralized renewable energy. But that transformation has been one of the starkest is getting um, electricity to nearly every household. The other thing that I witnessed, um, you know, I, I was participant in a, uh, in a journey, uh, 2,500 miles across the country in an electric vehicle that was manufactured by an electric vehicle manufacturer um, back in 2009. Um, that manufacturer was since acquired by a larger conglomerate called Mahindra. Um, and we were trying to demonstrate that this indigenously manufactured lithium ion battery uh, powered 
Indian vehicle um, uh, could have a role to play in India's mobility solutions uh, at a time where electricity was not uh, available everywhere. And today, um, we're talking about you know, government policies that are fully backing an electric vehicle revolution for the country. Transform, we're talking about banning the internal combustion engine uh, and in the not too distant future and all kinds of incentives for the deployment of electric vehicles, not just four wheelers, but three wheelers and two wheelers. So I would say that the India of 15 years ago uh, and the India of today has made tremendous progress in terms of the direction it's headed um, and, and we haven't even touched on the fact that on the renewables side, the equation has really been you know, turned on its head in terms of which kind of energy will dominate India's power sector in the future. So I want to I get to that. So first, hooking 500 million people up to the grid and thinking about a future of electric vehicles is not trivial. I mean, it is changing the whole concept of energy poverty. It is changing, it is, it is making things available to people other sorts of income streams. It's, it's really, um, you know, it's, it's potentially transformative on many levels from political to, to inside the home to, uh, to the India's position in the world. Um, but one of the other things that happened, and that alone would be enough, but let's talk a little bit about this thing that happened in 2017 um, when renewables suddenly became cheaper than coal. So 70% of, of India's grid right now is coal. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, now the projection, so, okay, in 2017, um, you know, India was really hitting its stride in terms of designing auctions uh, led by state government agencies for the bulk procurement of uh, power from solar through long-term contracts. Um, and one state in particular, the state of Madhya Pradesh, that's in the heart of India, really managed to, to figure to crack this code and get you know all kinds of relevant tab, rele, relevant financing institutions from international uh, in financial institutions, as well as structure the project in a way that would drive down the cost uh, in the bidding that was done by the developers to an incredible low. Uh, and since then, India hasn't really looked back. And just I think last year. Uh, the cost, the, the latest sort of auction for solar uh, brought the cost of solar power down to another tremendous low. Um, so we have reached a point in India where the cost of new renewable energy is certainly cheaper than the cost of new coal-fired power plants. And the projections are such that um, coupled with the declining costs of energy storage technologies um, and the combination of packaging these technologies together, um, renewable energy plus storage will be cheaper than existing coal-fired power plants. So we've come a long way, I think, in terms of which type of electron um, is going to really be the dominant force uh, in, in, in the Electrify India future, if you will. So um, there's a couple of interesting things here uh, going on that you're, that you're talking about, and I kind of want to reflect them back. And one is, so you... India accomplished this incredible thing of, of getting the cost of renewable energy beneath that of coal, of coal-fired electricity. Um, and that sort of set off um, a chain reaction because it's if you've if your power sector is all set up to use coal 
and they're all dependent upon coal and someone can suddenly undercut them in cost, then what starts to happen? Yeah, then if you are having too many institutions that are kind of locked into the coal value chain um, and they are being financed, you know, by public financial institutions in many cases for more and more projects, um, then you're kind of end up left holding a bag of stranded assets, potentially really bad debt um, that can that you need to figure out what to do with. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are at work in trying to solve this problem. But one of the things is that the planning process, I think maybe didn't envision the rate at which both business innovation and technological innovation pace would pick up um, to really allow renewables um, to start undercutting uh, the price of coal, the, the, the cost of power generated by coal. Um, and so now the challenge is really ensuring that this coal-centered economy can really start to pivot and be a part of the energy transition story and, and the, the green electrons that we really want to bring online. Um, and I think that's critical for a place like India where so much of the coal value chain is state-owned and not just privately owned um, because they are responsible for the welfare of entire communities where they operate. Uh, How many people are we talking about? We're talking about somewhere between 20 to 30 million people, according to some estimates, that are dependent on you know, the coal-based economy in India. Yeah. Um, and not just that. I mean, there's um, you know, coal is really embedded as part of government revenues for certain for the central government as well as certain states. And I think this is the case uh, in other parts of the world as well, where part of your state budget comes from revenues from extraction of certain kind of extractive um, you know, mineral wealth. Um, that's a, a, a hole in their budget that they're going to have to try and find a way to fill. Um, and then coal is transported by the Indian Railways, which is a national carrier, and it's a part of their business plan. It's, a, it's something that's burned by the National Thermal Power Corporation. Um, and it's certainly something that's controlled and mined by the largest uh, state-owned uh, coal mining agency, Coal India Limited. So the, but these institutions are really important to the economy. So I think their business plans will need to reorient to be a part of the growth story as, as, the, as the cleaner source of electricity really starts to dominate. Okay, so you've got this like, now we've got all the balls in the air here. We've got 500 million new people online on the grid. You've got that renewable energy is suddenly cheaper than coal. You've got 30 million people tied to the economy of coal, including all of these different structures, the railroads, are also dependent upon coal. You've got all of these things moving. You've got India also moving to take a center role in dealing with climate change um, and, and reducing carbon emissions. And you also have India moving to take a central role in providing solar solutions to other parts of the country. So here's here are all the balls or the plates that, that are spinning in the air. And tell me how bureaucracy can help get this thing moving in the right direction. Yeah, well, I think we need to understand a little bit about the bureaucratic structure of India. And, I'm, and there are far uh, smarter people than I that have studied the Indian bureaucracy. Um, I have had the privilege of engaging with um, a lot of bureaucrats um, in the Indian uh, administrative system, uh, which is one of the oldest bureaucracies in the world. Uh, How far uh, back does it go? Uh, definitely to the time of the British uh, Empire. Uh, so it was definitely uh, a part of the system that the British brought to help govern a pretty large, uh, a pretty large area of, across South Asia, I would say. Um, 
and sort of yeah so a, a system that was meant from the district level to the capital uh, to have people be able to um, track uh, processes to tax people to deliver government services um, and you know it's obviously evolved since that time period and since the partition of the subcontinent into several countries um, but it is very much adept at trying to deliver those services. So this, the system is in place. Um, and once given a mission, it can accomplish its tasks. Um, so I think that there is, we've come to a point where um, the system in itself can be given new mandates, a new guiding star to really help let better leverage um, you know, the, the resources that the country is trying to deploy towards this new target, which you know, the Prime Minister of India uh, certainly this last winter uh, in December of last year announced a net zero target for India. So what does this mean? This now means that the machinery um, is going to have to figure out a way to um, rethink its mandates to help meet that target. Now, the challenge is that the energy governing um, agencies uh, in the country are, there are many, Right, um, they are bifurcated on focused on on the power sector, which is controlled both by the central government as well as state governments. So state bureaucracies matter there. Um, but when it comes to oil and gas, um, that's controlled by the central government. When it comes to nuclear energy, that's controlled by the central government. Um, and by power, I also include renewables in that. Um, so I think you know, and the drive to electrify everyone. Um, there was a tremendous opportunity now to deploy electrons of any type to every corner of the country. Um, but at the same time, there's a mandate to, to create a gas-based economy, um, to get gas to every home for cleaner cooking fuel. Um, but I think that there is um, possibly a way to sort of combine these efforts now when the electron can do so much more um, to really bring some of these agencies together and aligned towards a vision of a decarbonized energy service delivery uh, agenda. Uh, that's in line with what, what has been set. When you talk about electrons, what you're saying is that an electron that comes from wind and solar is just as useful for making your morning tea as a, an electron that comes from oil or gas. The gas has to be imported from outside the country. So does the oil. The um, coal has to be mined within the country at a great cost. So all, but all of these for the end user are completely exchangeable. This is, everything can be fed into this. And you could also use biogas, you could use um, hydrogen, you could start other sorts of value chains to, uh, to sort of replace the coal one. Yeah, so basically we're talking about um, changing the mindset, that one that is sort of fixated on the delivery of carbon uh, to kind of the value chains that can be um, created to delivering, um, to storing, generating and delivering electrons. Um, and if we start to think about it that way, then the electric mobility revolution that India is currently trying to, uh, to, to deploy across uh, India can really find new life in rural areas. Um, because I think that there's tremendous potential for places that were previously unelectrified uh, to now start using electric mobility as a solution. There has to be a way to, um, to stimulate demand for electrons once these lines have been laid out for these people. And one way is electric mobility, electric cooking, heating, cooling. Um, and I think these are services that can be delivered by the existing system. It just sort of requires making sure that we're not just 
there's not competing interests between um, the type of electron that we're focused on the electron and the, the greenest and cheapest one is kind of on the horizon um, going to be winning and as in many cases already is. So we have an interesting, um, the, the audience was asked, which kind of energy do you think will dominate India's power sector 15 years from now? And 71% voted for solar power over coal or wind, which is really interesting. I mean, you do have a lot of, there is a lot of sun there, um, but it's also interesting that so many people see solar and wind as the future, because I don't know that that's uh, within 15 years, that's, a, that's significant. Do you think, so bureaucracies are known for being big and lumbering and they have a, not fully earned reputation in the United States for you know being slow on the uptake, um, and um, I wonder how do you just aim? I mean, how how do you get a, a bureaucracy to do this? Do you just aim a bureaucracy at a new target and and tell them to go for it and they do it? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's not it's not easy to. It's not easy to, it's easier to birth new institutions, bureaucratic mm -hmm. institutions than it is to, to kill them or wind them down or uh, you know, completely uh, overnight rewrite their mandate. Um, so I think there, there has to be sort of a gliding path uh, to, to sort of reorienting them. Um, and I think this is not you know, specific to India. I think this is around the world. This is in the intergovernmental processes. It's easier to birth new intergovernmental organizations too uh, than to wind them down. Um, so I think um, it requires some political will, of course, to sort of, you know, you can, you can go down that route to really mandate uh, a, a pathway to, to transition. But I mean, where do we go? Um, you know, 50 years from now, will there be needing a need for a ministry of coal? Not in, just in India, but anywhere. Uh, what, what happens to that? Do we know what that looks like? Do we know um, how we sort of slowly meld that into something else? And I would say that there, you need to sort of examine the mandates and roles of the different departments in a ministry and think through how you can start to tweak them. How, you know, the, the mining uh, section of a ministry of coal kind of being reoriented towards critical minerals mining, which is so important mm -hmm. to, to build it to the building blocks of renewable energy, um, to uh, a department um, that focuses on just transitions, which is really the, the topic that everybody is kind of starting to coalesce. Explain what that means, just transitions. What that really means, and I think this is what I'm trying to say about even these energy institutions and bureaucracies, we're not talking about leaving, uh, we're talking about changing mandates and technologies. Um, and we're not talking about leaving behind the people, uh, even of these ministries, right? They're part of a process. And so as the energy transition happens from fossil fuels to renewable sources. There will be new jobs created and people who will get them. There will inevitably be people who will be left behind, who may not, if we don't plan for it, um, really be in dire straits and the entire communities that depend on them. And we see this uh, in the West um, all the time. I think the classic examples is, you know, West Virginia is one key geography. I'm here in Europe, they were talking about it in Germany and Poland. Uh, and Bulgaria and places. So, you know, India is at this place where publicly owned institutions, um, publicly run institutions uh, that are responsible for the welfare of people that are wedded to the fossil fuel value chain have the, have the time and space and the resources to begin funneling capital towards transitioning 
their own business models and the the sort of whatever the 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 the, the communities might need to do next. Um, and I think that's that's what a just transition is is making sure that those people aren't left behind. And I do think it's a little bit easier to do with fossil fuel institutions that are state run because it's not private sector. So it's not the shareholder is the government and it's you know taxpayers and, and the voting public. Um, they can actually take care of pension plans in a way that I would argue, um, you know, bankruptcy is not the same pathway for a state-owned enterprise as it is for a privately owned one. Um, because a private, you know, the CEOs are not necessarily going to be responsible in a privately owned institution for what happens to the community after the company goes bankrupt. Um, so I, I would like to just this is this is very good. I want to I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about taking very creative mandates so that this fossil the coal company, for example, is no longer earning their keep by by finding coal and digging it up, but perhaps by cleaning up previous industrial accidents or or um, or areas that have been heavily mined. Or how do you start to to redirect this all in a much more sort of a, a futuristic direction? And I think you you've done a lot of kind of creative thinking about these mandates, how you can change how how they can affect roads, how they can affect be very cross cutting, affect poverty, affect industrialization, affect pollution. Let's talk a little bit about that creative mandate. Yeah, well, let's take the example, you know, of uh, an environmental sort of pollution watchdog, um, right? Going around to make sure that industries are compliant uh, in whatever they're releasing, you know, the effluent, is it clean and up to standards, is it emissions into the air? Um, one typically thinks of a, of a bureaucratic, bureaucratic system that's in the environmental uh, pollution monitoring space is going around to check, to offer citations, to force implementation or closure. Um, instead, imagine an institution that is able to bulk procure uh, pollution control technologies. And uh, when they're going to uh, a firm that is, you know, making whatever it is making and seeing whether or not they are emitting, uh, you know, pollutants, rather than a citation, making sure that everybody has the pollution control technology um, to at least mitigate for uh, that particular externality so that we're not actually generating economic activity at the expense of the environment. Another way um, that I explored to look can at I, this is- Can I just interject a, a little bit? Lay that out a little bit more. So, so the inspector goes to the ice cream factory and right now the inspector is likely to say, hey, you're shut down, you are dumping something into the water. So then the ice cream factory shuts down, people lose their jobs, who knows what happens? I mean, provided everything works. But then in your scenario, you're saying the ice cream inspector goes, he looks at the factory, he says, look, we have a contract to get scrubbers for your water and we will get those ice cream particles or whatever's in there out before they go back in the water. Plus, we're also supporting this industry of scrubbers, which also imply, employs other people. So what you're saying is that sort of this virtuous circle of environmental protection and um, uh, creating more and, jobs, and right? Industry jobs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, imagine then you are potentially creating an ecosystem 
where you have new firms setting up to um, not only manufacture, but also innovate upon that um, incredible amounts of new kinds of environment, pollutant, con pollutant control technologies. Um, so I think, you know, in coming with solutions rather than citations, that whole conversation is changed. Um, and similarly, um, you know, if, if a mandate is to get, you know, fossil gas into every household for cooking, um, and by the way, you have to import large amounts of that because you don't have it for any particular country. Why not make it that you are basically ensuring that you can provide cooking energy solutions and at the same time make the country more energy secure by reducing imports? What does that do to the mandate? Um, and what, in what ways could a bureaucracy start to rethink its own mandate and within those confines rather than we will just dig it up lay pipelines and find more ways to pump those molecules through the pipelines to every home, which, you know, will vary, you know, the price fluctuations on that fossil gas will continue to be a political headache uh, time and again, and subsidies will have to be found from some part of the budget to make sure people are kept happy so that they can cook their food. Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of moving to electric food cooking yes. that runs on, on, that uses this grid and uses all these different sources. Um, so one of the things that I think you, a word I've heard you use is entrepreneurs, and that is bureaucrats as, as like, as creative as an entrepreneur. Tell me about your experiences with this. Tell me why you believe in an, in an, in an entrepreneur and why, yeah, you, why well, you see this. I think when you are, and yeah, I have had a short stint as in a bureaucratic structure myself. Um, and I know what it's like to sort of be a part of a process, uh, you know, work things up a chain, um, you know, uh, make sure that bilateral or multilateral, you know, policies are in line with what we want domestically. Um, and I think that that, you know, you get used to a process, but I think there are windows where you can then think about ways to improve the process. Um, and particularly depending on like at what level of governance and, and the chain of bureaucracy you're in, my experience has been in, in conversation that um, particularly in federal systems where states have quite a bit of power, there is ample space for innovative new things to be tested and for those ideas to sort of end up becoming uh, national policy. And we've seen this in the US, we've seen it in India, other parts of the world where such structures exist. Um, and so, you know, I, I think as we're at the cusp of more clean energy, more disruptive technology being deployed, it's at the subnational level where these ideas, where the money is being deployed, where the technologies are being deployed, that there is scope for the bureaucratic, if given the space to individuals who are, you know, willing to put their ideas out there to be able to test these waters and to innovate um, new types of policy design for sure, and that happens, but even think through how the institutions at the state level can be re recast. It's interesting because the story that you're telling about, about bureaucracies, we, we tend to think it's top down, but you're also saying it's bottom up and that the experiences from the states or the towns or counties can kind of percolate up while also directives can come down and support can come down. And, and you can end up with this meshing of the different levels that you don't necessarily get with um, sort of higher level climate policy. And that in, in fact, part of what you're talking about is getting the whole bureaucracy engaged in this process. Yeah, and I think the, the 
the ways that I have seen it play out, and I think I'll use a very specific example if, if there's time, you know, that yes. I've tra traveled to uh, an Indian state of, of Assam, it's in India's Northeast. Um, and it was, uh, I've been there a couple of times, uh, there's uh, the state-based arm of India's Ministry of New and Renewable Energy called the Assam Energy Development Agency. I'd gone there to have a meeting, um, you know, outside, the the uh, the agency um, what were the sort of relics of the agency's past, right? From from a from an era when when the states and the central government was really trying to socialize the importance of renewable energy and educate the masses about what it was um, and the real government push behind it, right? So there's a huge demo vehicle with a solar hot water heater, a solar panel, a, a wind turbine that's not at scale, um, and uh, and solar and you know solar lights and things like that. It is. In this moment in time, when I visited, I think it was in, in 2014, um, you know, tires were deflated, it was rusted and, and dusty. Um, out, outside the agency was also a model sort of solar, uh, government run solar shop, um, you know, again, meant to help people buy subsidized solar products, cobwebbed, dust covered, um, went inside and the flurry of activity in this place um, was unbelievable. I mean, we, a, a passionate, group of, uh, of, of committed staff talking about photovoltaics, um, which is basically how to leverage ponds uh, and, and water bodies as a means to deploy solar panels on top of them to generate electricity in places where you don't have much land, but maybe you're living in a water world kind of situation, which is Assam. Um, and you know, calling up a, a local entrepreneur who is uh, busy setting up an electric vehicle charging uh, business for uh, a booming three-wheeler um, uh, automotive market that you know three-wheelers are used to basically transport goods and people and are cheap and you know anybody can get in the business of uh, maybe putting together a vehicle or buying a vehicle and recuperating their costs uh, to transport goods and people and so it was a completely different uh, thing happening on the inside than the shell which was the outside so the technologies um, had changed, the times have changed, the business models had changed, the people were still the same, um, and they were one step ahead, if not several, in trying to make sure that they were mastering uh, the changing energy transition around them. And I think that's what we're talking about here. That's such an interesting thing of really, really figuring out how to deploy the people who understand how all the little parts fit together. And float, for photovoltaics, you really need to understand your local farmers and your local ponds and your and and solar. And you you can't you can't fly in and come up with a wacky idea like photovoltaics and expect it to work. I want to go to a few audience questions, and then I'm going to ask you sort of a big question at the end. So um, we have one question: um, Can you say a little bit about what kind of retraining would be necessary for the bureaucrats? What sorts of process funding process changes would be necessary? What sort of funding process changes would be necessary? Is that what the question was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, listen, I think that I'd be curious to know if such models have been tried uh, by different governments. Um, you know, what, um, wh one way that I have seen it play out in India more recently is giving a certain level of autonomy uh, to bureaucrats to approve projects above, you know, raising the threshold of budget line item that uh, a bureaucrat might be able to approve a project for or have disc used discretionary funds for. Um, I think that would be a really interesting way to sort of 
allow um, bureaucracy or those in leadership positions in bureaucracy to be able to experiment with new ideas. Um, I think exchanges with other, um, with sort of innovative institutions uh, or think tanks um, or, you know, labs as it may be within, within the country or outside the country to get exposure is a way to kind of get one out of a system they're so entrenched in. Um, and, you know, where resources are not there. I mean, I think that's where funding could be made that is more nimble uh, to, to allow that flexibility for um, creating kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, flexible ministries, like transition ministries even. Like, can we pilot this out, this new initiative, park a, a team somewhere together that whose time will be covered if we're afraid to use taxpayer dollars to do it? Um, and I think those are, you know, those are solutions that are worth trying where, where governments are open to it, of course, um, because we don't know what kinds of solutions might emerge from, from such a process. So those are some of the ways that I think could be tried and maybe are already being tried by certain governments somewhere. Yeah, I love the whole entrepreneurial aspect of this, of this unleashing the creativity of people who've really given their lives to thinking about how to keep daily life running for the rest of us. Um, we have another question. India was a relatively early adopter of nuclear power. What has prevented India from using nuclear to bolster its power generation? And how has the bureaucracy reacted to nuclear? Yeah, um, well, this is a loaded question. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's hard to not, um, I don't wanna get too lost in the geopolitics of, of this question. There's, you know, there, in, India had sanctions against it for, testing nuclear weapons by the you know, global community of actors that controls nuclear technology. So one thing that India did manage to do um, because of those sanctions is actually put a considerable amount of domestic R&D towards it. It's amazing what you can do when you have sanctions that don't allow you to have access to things like uranium. You sort of put your money behind thorium and fast breeder technologies, which allow you to leverage uh, an element that you have in, in, in abundance. Uh, to see if that can be used uh, with small batches of uranium, of course, to really allow your nuclear industry industry to flourish. Now, India has sort of come out of that shadow of, of those kinds of limitations, but unfortunately, the and I, unfortunately the the cost equation um, on on nuclear for generation of power from nuclear in India just hasn't been uh, didn't has not come or grown at the pace at other renewables. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, I, I think most people would say the cheapest electron should win. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's debatable, you know, how green is nuclear energy? Um, some say that it's, it's part of the solution and some think that, you know, that it comes with its own baggage. Uh, without going to that debate, I will just say that it's just not, um, it's not cost competitive. Now, that doesn't mean that it hasn't uh, taken root in India. And I think that sanctions example of how it forces a country to react and for, the bureaucracy to then, you know, choose to, to invest uh, and continue to do R&D in the space is quite telling um, that India was able to go down a completely different track. Um, and, and who knows, maybe we, we might see a resurgence of nuclear, but right now it's really wind, uh, solar and, and energy storage and hydrogen actually, green hydrogen that everybody is really banking on. I think that um, the fact that they were innovating with thorium is really interesting because that's um, it is it is a subject of, of a lot of discussion. I guess it's the best way to put whatever's going on with thorium. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit. You know, this 
we tend to frame climate as the policies as having winners and losers. And, you know, I think another, another way of framing it is that everybody has to have, um, everyone has burdens to bear in the global climate regime. And one of the things I thought was very interesting about this thinking, use, thinking through the bureaucracy is that you start to see that there are opportunities to share. You start to see the problem in an entirely new way. So talk to me a little bit about that. How did you, how did this, how did this start to open up for you as you started thinking about it? And how can it be applied elsewhere? Yeah, I think, um, listen, the, some of these ideas, these ideas were sort of coming more fast paced post pandemic, of course, right? Um, you hit a wall, you kind of shut the global economy down and then you're kind of, you're, you're emerging from that and it's a struggle. And there's a lot of talk uh, about building back better, right? In, in many parts of the world and unleashing tremendous amounts of capital, uh, the likes that we haven't seen even in the US for quite some time. I think that's, you know, even the infrastructure bill uh, is an incredible infusion of funds that we're still sort of figuring out how, to, how it's gonna be used uh, exactly. Um, and so that all that money needs to, to be guided by um, a rethinking on the institutional side. Um, and also every dollar spent now um, matters more than ever. And it should be going towards building a more climate resilient society um, and one where we have less social unrest and jobs, uh, you know, social unrest caused by economic insecurity is what I'm really getting at here. Um, because there's no time to lose. I mean, I think the pandemic really um, showed that we need to, we need to build back better. Um, and, and that one way, so the guiding paths really need to be um, making sure that we create jobs and that we're repairing ecosystems while we're doing it because the pandemic is also, let's not forget, uh, driven by a zoonotic disease uh, that really came out of the problem that we have, the constant battle with the ecosystems um, that surround us. Um, and I think um, to get it, like, can this be done uh, around the world and other parts of the world? Is that kind of what you were wanting to? Yeah, to... I'm wondering, is this a sort of thinking that we should apply elsewhere? Should we stop looking, should we, you know, when you, when you make carbon the center of the problem, you have winners and you have losers. And right. how do you figure out more winners? Yeah. And, and that's so, what I mean, the I... bureaucracy really is as a, yeah. as a, as a weapon. Well, the bureaucracy and uh, using the bureaucracy as a weapon, um, carbon, you know, we have, we have made that the problem, right? And you see at the global stage, like who's gonna emit how much more carbon before we all kind of burn up, right? That's, that's been part of the reason why the, the global debate and the negotiations on climate have been, um, have been slow. And, and many would say that, you know, we're, climate change is happening, it's gonna happen, now we need to survive what's coming mm -hmm. uh, and build a more resilient society fast and find ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So, I mean, I think now we need to bring everybody along and not be sort of antagonistic entirely. I mean, it's true that many more ships need to be guided in the right direction and there needs to be more advocacy. But I would say that this is where the just transition piece really becomes, again, critical uh, to making sure that the machinery in place that is sort of fossil fuel value chain driven, that is carbon driven, is made a part of the sort of electron delivery 
value chain and is part of the opportunity unleashed by the discussion of everything getting electrified. Um, and I do think that the fact that we're headed in that direction of a electrify everything moment um, really presents that opportunity for so many more jobs to be created, for so much more ecosystem to be restored uh, and so much more better use of our financial resources. I think it's a really interesting portrait too of how we could rethink industrialization away from the previous model, which involved, you know, we, we call these things extratalities, but you just emitted stuff and, and yeah. assumed that it, it fell on whoever was near the plant and that was sort of their problem. And so it reinforced poverty and, it, um, and, and how do you build a more, um, how, how do you build a world where more people can live better lives rather than seeing climate policy as a way to stop development, um, which is sometimes the way that it has been framed that we were going to preserve these forests and we wanna preserve things here. But it, the, the, the way forward really is, is, is full transformation. Um, we have a, another question about what are the chances of having sting operations at all levels of bureaucracy to enhance effectiveness of operations and very appropriate use of funds? I don't fully understand that. Do you know what a sting operation is in the bureaucracy? Oh, it depends on where that question's coming from. Um, <laughs> uh, a sting, I mean, like in my head, a sting operation is like, you know, maybe the boss coming down and uh, not from with, I don't know, uh, not maybe, head of an agency, but maybe from like a much more senior uh, portion of government sort of uh, coming down to make sure, I mean, I'm like, this is, again, I, I'm trying to think through what this question could mean, but like making sure that, you know, files are moving, that um, funds are being dispersed and aren't being held up or really asking people why they're being held up. Um, uh, I wonder if that's what a sting operation looks like, but I don't know who has the time uh, and do we need to fund an entire other machinery to just go in and do sting operations as opposed <laughs> to, to sort of changing, um, uh, you know, collectively a mandate of, of an entity and going through that exercise. So someone else, thank you. Someone else wrote and said that they loved your video before the event where you bike to work um, and you talked about some of these issues and the person wonders if there are lessons or inspirations that you've taken from living there that, that you can imagine applying either in India, the United States, oh, anywhere for your global, global is, citizenry. Yeah, and without making it seem like it's an ad for the Netherlands, uh, for those from the Netherlands who are listening. I mean, it is, it is a really unique um, place to be. It's a country that has actually, uh, you know, within, without six months of pumping water, 40% of the land would go under the ocean. They are masters of engineering water. So let's get that out of the way. Um, uh, and, and have sort of been able to modify their environment, really build this country out. But the infrastructure is just, I mean, it's next level. Um, you get out of your house and you are in connected, protected bike lanes to any corner of the country. And I mean that uh, in every way, right out to the rural countryside. Um, and, uh, and that allows a certain level of freedom and mobility um, that is unparalleled. And of course, pedestrians have the right of way for them as well. Um, and you have a rail network uh, you know, that is renewable powered 100%. Um, and the mobility options are plenty. So it's just, it's designed 
uh, and I think even communities are structured around rail stations. Everything you could need, you know, is planned in a way that makes um, makes sense, and you know, so makes life on a day to day very easy. There's not this sort of struggle to get to the office in a sort of pre-pandemic world. There's not a struggle to get to a, a grocery store or get your kids to school and to work and back. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's really, it, I, I used to bike in college and after that, you know, moving to, to the New England area, I wasn't really biking around in DC. I didn't even dream of it. I think things have changed. And what I've noticed is as roads shut down around the world, many cities as they reemerged, were experimenting with just turning some of those lanes of roads into bike lanes. And that just makes so much more sense. Um, I think if we reorient and reclaim our sort of living spaces for non-motorized traffic, um, the world would be a lot better. We're gonna have to close there. I think it's just a, it's a fabulous portrait also. What you're talking about really is bureaucrats figured out how to make the bike lanes end at the right place and connected the train stations and the train stations and somebody's keeping all the pumps running. That whole sort of um, bureaucracy of engaged people who are working on this at the systems level and the very specific level just to keep daily life moving. Um, and it's not a group that we talk about a lot as change makers, but it's this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and to everyone in our audience, thank you for listening and asking good questions. You can visit Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org for a summary of this talk, brief interviews with both of us and many other great articles and events, including our future events in this series. And you can visit Issues in Science and Technology where you can read Karthikeya's essay uh, titled Bureaucracies for the Better. Thank you again. And I hope you have a wonderful evening. Yes, have a good one, everyone.